0: Warning, you probably haven't heard an episode of any podcast like this before. I know I haven't. And what you're about to hear makes me deeply uncomfortable. Have I got your attention? Good. So, let's begin. What do the founders and CEOs of Coinbase, OpenAI, Reddit, Brex, Notion, and even everyone's favourite modern-day venture capitalist-cum-philosopher, Naval, have in common? They all have the same coach. And today for this pretty raw episode, so do I. Matt Mashari is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and the author of the brilliant book The Great CEO Within, which I highly recommend. But he's probably best known as one of the most in-demand coaches on the planet. He has designed his own coaching framework called the Mashari Method, which he and his team of coaches use to help some of the biggest players in the tech world. You cannot book Matt. Hell, it was pretty hard to get him to just join today's podcast. He's generally too busy with his foundation, which is focused on giving back. But as you might know by now, I can be pretty persuasive. So we reached an agreement. He and a member of his team, Georgia Dienst, a CEO coach and former director at Google X, would come on and we would show what a coaching session using the Mashari method was really like. We care that you get value out of your time listening. And whilst we can't put a price on your time tuning in, a session with Matt is around $20,000. So hopefully there's going to be some ROI for you. I do have a coach already, the brilliant Mika Vipan, and I have to say it is one of the most impactful things I've found in my career so far, but I've never had a session broadcast to tens of thousands of people before, and for pretty good reason. The topics are normally highly sensitive, so the prospect made me extremely uncomfortable. But, as we all know, that means it was a growth opportunity, and one I shouldn't shy away from. And what happened in this session has dramatically changed my business. After talking to Matt and Georgia, I made one of the hardest decisions of my business life. I let go of 40% of my workforce last week. Today, you're going to hear how I came to that conclusion and why directly during this coaching session. Now, you might be thinking, why in the hell is he broadcasting this? But, as listeners of my show know, I've been building my company, Heights, in public for the last three years, from zero to almost seven million dollars in revenue now. I decided to do that because I hated the PR-driven award ceremony bullshit version of Startup Land that is nothing like the truth. I want to show what it's really like to be completely transparent about the realities of building a business, especially the parts that we'd rather not think about. But I also knew when I started doing it, it would be really awkward, potentially reputation-destroying. And honestly, in 200-plus episodes of Secret Leaders, multiple building and public posts on LinkedIn and Twitter and more, this is the most uncomfortable I've ever been. But before I talk myself out of it, let's get to it. This is Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and my guests today are Matt Mashari and Georgia Deanst. Matt, Georgia, thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you, Dan. This is fun.
2: Super excited to be here with you.
0: Let's start by getting to know you both a little bit. So what made you want to get into coaching? Is it something that seemed obvious in your life path?
2: Not for me. Matt, was it for you?
0: No,
1: not at all. It was completely coincidental and circumstantial. For me, what happened was when I started a company, I started with a a co-founder, Michael Carrier, and neither of us had run a company before. And this is back in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And we raised a tremendous amount of money, $130 million in, inside of eight months or nine months from founding, hired 270 people in those in the first 12 months or maybe 18 months, whatever it was, it was crazy. And we had no idea what we were doing and how to run a company and we didn't run it well. In fact, we ran it terribly. The financial outcome ended up being fine but the operational outcome was terrible and so for many years after that i i thought well how do you actually do this and i didn't worry about it too much because i was having fun and then i was doing good but eventually i moved back to silicon valley and I, and I thought well what was the right answer there has to be a right answer so i just ordered a business book and i got high output management by andy andy grove and i and i read it and my eyes went huge i thought oh my god here are all the answers have i just known this And then I read another business book and another business book, and each one just had nuggets of gold. Of course, they were all 350 pages long, and I didn't have time to read any 350-page books while I was running a company. So then I thought, well, why don't I just summarize these into one or two pages? And I did. And then why don't I share this with one or two people that are running companies now and see if they can get use out of it? Basically test out, do these things actually work? So I decided to start coaching people and, and test out these techniques Turns out they all worked. And they're all super simple. And so I didn't invent any of this stuff. This is all written and, and created by other people in very long, detailed business books. All I did was summarize them and make them sort of applicable. Here's what you do: A, B, C, D, or one, two, three, four. And it turns out that CEOs who've got to run a company in very little time appreciate having things summarized and explained. Just do this, do this, do this, without having to do hours and hours of other research or other. Um, you know, other effort. Georgia, how about you?
2: Very similar thing. Um, I think when I joined Google, I got a promotion relatively quickly because I landed a, a big deal and I was like, yay, this is awesome. And after about uh, two months of suddenly managing 80 people, I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is a lot harder than I thought. I thought I would just tell people what to do and this is not really working. Um, so my manager not only recommended they had a sort of internal training for manager, which I was already signed on for, but to go do a coaching training. So I did a one-year internal at Google coaching training, and that to me just opened my eyes um, to something that I realized that human relating is not just you know, building friendships and like telling people what to do and just the, the, these basic things, but that there were certain tools and techniques and technologies really of how to get the best out of people and how to make teams work well and how to have great feedback culture and how to really create a culture that sort of, you know, enjoyed each other. And so that really set a trajectory where suddenly I wasn't just managing, I was actually coaching my teams. And when I, especially when I joined Google X and um, I was dealing with a lot of incredibly bright, very cerebral individuals around the world trying to sort of scout for the most interesting moonshots, that was my job then, but to get them to be able to tell their stories and to be able to present brought a whole nother skill set out of me where I was like, God, I love these guys. I love the amazing stuff that they're working on. But how can I get them to help themselves tell their stories better in public? And so that's when I realized I just love helping. I love getting the genius out in other people. And so it was a total stumbled upon career path. And I'm so glad I found it.
1: I think you now just clearly see why Georgia's a phenomenal coach and why she's a better coach than I am. Humility? No. (laughs) There you go. So I think there's two main stages of a a company. One is getting to product market fit, and the other is scaling up once you've gotten to product market fit. Two entirely distinct phases. Georgia and my coaching, everyone at Mashari Method, we focus primarily on product market fit and up. So scaling. And the reason is it's all about once you start scaling, you inevitably need to hire people. You need to hire more salespeople, more marketing people. These are more humans. And the more humans you have, the harder it is to keep everybody on the same page as to what's the current priority in the company and to keep the CEO informed of what the problems that his team is experiencing or her team is experiencing so that she can fix those problems. And this problem has been solved before. Any massively successful large technology company has already solved this problem. Google has solved it. Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Netflix. Unfortunately, though, they don't sell their system. They don't create software and say, boom, here's what we do. They do create software, but it's all internal. They don't sell it. So all we've done is we've simply extracted what it is that they do and compiled it into Google Docs, into a methodology that we then share with the people that we coach. But really what you want is you want someone from the inside. I've never worked at any of those companies. Clearly, Georgia has. And she has that training from inside Google where she's experienced it. And that's what she's able to share. I can't do that.
0: Can I ask before we move on, um, what's actually been the hardest challenge you've faced as a coach so far?
1: Hmm, good question. Hardest challenge I've faced as a coach so far. Um, I mean, going through with my coachees when they face a hard challenge. Um, Although that's really the inspiring moments. Those are the fun moments as well to help them see that the, the beauty in this and the learning and the upside, uh, I'm sorry. I don't think I've faced a challenging moment as a coach. I don't think I've faced it. It's been all good for me. Okay. I'll tell you what I just thought of it. Um, coaching for me has been so fun and so consuming. I love it so much and I do it so much. Get ready for a big reveal here um, that I, um, I didn't spend time with my family and, and I haven't up until very recently when my wife shared with me, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be married to you anymore. And so now I'm, I, I do spend a lot of time with my family because I need to, and I'm loving it. Um, but it's a, that was a huge, that was a huge challenge, uh, is a huge challenge. There you go. Bet you didn't expect that.
0: Yeah, because... Thank you for sharing. Well, it's interesting because there's a question that we do ask on the show a lot is, what have you sacrificed? And um, not everyone considers... That they have sacrificed things, but a lot of people obviously have. And it's usually the obvious stuff. And of course, you might even reflect yourself, you know, whilst you're spending the extra time with your family, what are you sacrificing? You're sacrificing spending more time with your coaching clients, which is obviously your icky guy. It's where you get a lot of your personal fulfillment from. So my coach actually said something very wise to me. She said, when I was complaining about balance, she said, There's no such thing as balance. You're always, you're like a pendulum, you're moving away from something and towards something. And it's just about recognizing where you are on the pendulum swing, rather than trying to find equilibrium, which I found super helpful. Georgia, what about yourself?
2: Uh, uh, I think the the hardest moments are when I get to coach a co-founder team and one is really willing and able and wanting to be coached and move on. And one is just a hard nut to crack. And it makes me sad and it's really challenging because I realize, is this team doomed Uh, in the sense that did he just choose somebody who's not willing to grow at the rate as he is? And so when you come in there as coach, you're trying to, I sometimes feel like it's, you know, a a lawyer trying to, you know, clarify things and open things up. But if one person doesn't want to be coached, my heart bleeds because I realize, wow, this is a situation where even I can't really help very much.
0: Thank you. Okay, so what we're going to do now is slightly unconventional for secret leaders, but what is the point in getting to world-class coaches on a call if we don't explore some of what coaching actually looks like? You know, hopefully this will be interesting to listeners to actually see the process you go through. And of course, I will be the subject of um, either humility or humiliation, we will find out. But Matt, why don't we start off with what a traditional a traditional call would be, so let's say I call you up and I'm trying to get you to take me on as a client. What happens? Take me through this.
1: Well, I'd say, Dan, let's see if this works. Let's just dive right in. Let's talk about what it is right now that is causing you to feel fear or anger. Another way to think about this is last night, you didn't sleep fully well. You woke up in the middle of the night. What is what is dragging you down right now? Again, fear or anger?
0: Mm. Um Fear would be a very fair answer. i very, very, very rarely motivated by anger. That's not really an emotion that I think I ever feel, really. Um, but fear, for sure. I mean, it's worth saying, you know, contextually, I have a lot of change going on in my life right now. I just got randomly evicted. I'm moving into my renovated home in April. Um, I have to move out with my baby and two cats by the end of this month. Out of nowhere, that wasn't the plan, but it is now. You know, that does keep me up at night. My wife, you know, is definitely would describe herself as OCD. So, you know, it's a lot of what she's thinking about. So that's like a background of unplanned change that is uncomfortable and difficult. But I think underlying it all, the truth of the matter is what's driving me is at the start of every year, I I, I pick a word to, to figure out how I want to go forward and, and grow that year. And this year I chose Confidence. I think I lost a bit of the confidence towards the end of last year. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, my primary focus in business is as CEO of Heights. And I am very consciously aware that we didn't reach our heights last year. We're three years into the journey. And we came out the blocks all guns firing the second year, all guns firing last year. We did grow 120%, but we could have done a lot more. And I know that's true. And I don't feel like that's just startup hyperbole, etc. I know that we could. And so where I'm at currently is I know that the world has changed. The funding environment has changed. There's a lot of trepidation in the market. And I believe that there are various routes that we can take to get ourselves out of, I suppose, not a rut, but certainly much slower growth than I think is healthy for where we're at. And the last thing I want to do is raise money. And the reason for that actually is because I feel like where we're at currently, which I think you would describe as pre-product market fit, you know, for context, we're about 6 six point seven million 6700000 million, but we're a consumer startup. So I feel like pre it's kind of still very much pre-PMF. Um, I feel like because I don't want to raise money because I feel like it all gloss over the cracks rather than helping us solve the hard problems. I don't have that many options. I feel like our burn is a bit high. We haven't quite figured things out. You know, all of this can be summarized and the confidence thing, it can all be summarized as we haven't quite figured things out. And it's my responsibility as CEO, to figure those things out. And until they're figured out, I won't sleep at night.
1: Perfect. The first step in coaching, I believe, is to make sure that I and Georgia understood what you said. And so I'm gonna reflect back what I heard and you tell me if I got it close and then where Georgia will as well and we'll see if either of us gets it. So what I heard was that there's a lot of chaos in your personal life right now. You just are required to move houses with your very young child in your family and that's always painful and chaotic but underlying all that that's just sort of a storm on top of the fact that you're three years in you've got six million in revenue this past year which is a good start but clearly the product hasn't gone viral hasn't yet gotten to the space where people who are buying going oh my god this is the best product i've ever had i'm telling all my friends about it That's not happening yet. So product market fit, certainly strong product market fit hasn't occurred yet. And yet you've got a team that has a serious payroll and you're burning into the cash you have. And now you're faced with a funding environment that is 90% reduced from where it was a year and a month ago. And you know that you could sell a large portion of the company and raise the money that you need to keep going with this team. But that's not what you want to do, because what you really want to do is make sure you get the product market fit as fast as you can, reduce your expenses to give yourself that runway as long as you can, and only raise money when it's the last option available. But really, you'd like to do these two things without raising money, so you never have to raise money. Is that close?
0: The only tweak I would make is fundamentally our, our product is actually a subscription product. So the thing that saves us is the product itself. Uh, the retention is absolutely phenomenal. And actually, our big problem is communicating our value to new customers and understanding really where our, it's almost like message market fit or audience market fit. There's something around that. But, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that our customers stick for life, if it wasn't for that, we'd be fucked. Is So it's a slightly different version, but it fundamentally is still a big issue. And um, we haven't worked it out and we've been trying to crack it all year. And, you know, you mentioned the word go viral. I wouldn't even want to go viral. I want predictable, repeatable, understandable, know what we're doing. Whereas virality, in my experience, having had that experience before in a previous business, it can, you know, just like funding, it can mask problems. I guess I just wanted to clarify that, but it is still definitely an issue. And we would definitely be dead if it wasn't for the fact that we're a subscription business and people stick around.
1: Well, let's make sure we get it 100% correct. So Georgia, what else did you hear Dan say? And my guess is Georgia will nail it.
2: Dan, let's see. Um, What I heard here is, thank God we have these incredibly loyal customers that are keeping us alive. But somehow, how are we going to create more of these loyal customers? What do we need to tell them? What is the message that we need to put out there to attract more Little customer to us so that we can really see this sort of hockey stick of revenue. Is that about right? Correct.
0: Yes, it is. All of our revenue really to date, 95% of our customers are in Europe and we're really trying to enter the USA. We do have employees in the USA, but we are not making progress there yet. So, you know, there's so much opportunity. Mm. I find it bewildering that we're not making proper progress yet. I don't want to raise more. I want to figure it out. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes.
1: So there's two ways that coaching can go. One is we can hear what you said, and then we can start giving you tactical advice. Or we can do what I'd like to do now, which is you say more, we reflect more, we say there's more, you keep going, and eventually you'll get to the answer just by having you keep revealing more and more. And for somebody, there's this crazy psychological thing where once you say something, and those are the thoughts that are running in your head, and someone reflects them back to you and you go, yes, that's it. Suddenly, your brain is able to take those thoughts, put them to the side because they've been recorded. It's like they've been written down. Someone else knows them. They're they're captured. I don't have to keep thinking about them to keep them in reality. Now, all of a sudden, the brain is willing to have the next level of thoughts. And then all of a sudden, stuff appears to you. And then you reflect, you say that, and then we reflect that to you. And then your brain suddenly has the next level of thoughts. So let's try that version. It's pretty crazy. All right. So Dan, what I now heard is, is that you have customers in the UK and Europe, and they're very discerning customers. And clearly... You've, you're solving a problem that resonates with people, but your real market is in the US and you haven't, don't have customers in the US, at least not in volume. You haven't cracked that code yet. And if you really wanna to grow to any level of size, you'll have to start connecting with US customers in the way that you've already started to in the UK and Europe. Is that right?
0: Correct. We have a thousand customers in the USA, which you know is a, a, a grain of sand.
1: There's more. Please tell us more.
0: Um, There's a thousand customers in the USA and they're showing the same behavior, which is excellent. Retention is just as high. And okay, just to unpack that, there's a thousand customers in the USA. Um, Fortunately, you know, it's not nothing, but at the same time, you know, we're looking to get 30, 40, 50,000 over the next year. That would uh, be a groundbreaking change in our business. And I feel like the thousand is potentially, you know, relatively random. You know, it's a whole bunch of different tests that have gone on and, you know, mopped up some people on that test and this test and whatever, but there's not any necessary evidence yet of which angle or audience we're going after to make that stuff scalable, clearly. If I think about, for example, some of the stuff that worked well in the UK, we did get very lucky, very, very lucky, that a couple of the most arguably respected intelligent people here in the UK became early customers and advocates and were willing to do unpaid testimonials and tell other people about it because it made a transformational impact for them but they're not broadly recognized in the USA so you know we can't leverage that and it's interesting because what we learned here early is' we're, we make basically we make health supplements for brain and gut they're science-backed, et cetera, but what we learned is there's no amount of scientific evidence or papers or the test we are doing or any of this stuff that seems to convert quite so much as, certainly in this market, as respected, authoritative, trusted people. So because we got lucky we were able to use that opportunity and it did gloss over our marketing efforts a lot because what that meant was we never really had to figure out how to communicate our product to any layman any customer we want to reach out to we had a massive brand halo effect by knowing that we have the best product therefore the smartest most discerning people actually trusting it taking it you know and and maintaining it and telling people was a default marketing strategy, but it's not a scalable one. It doesn't solve the problem, and it hasn't. Obviously, we haven't got that in the USA yet, so it's not really an opportunity at the moment. And of course, no one knows us there. And I, and I guess also, you know, just thinking it through, you know, it's it's nice to have. It's not the solve for your problem. Like it doesn't solve our problem at all. We still should always have a clear understanding of how what we do benefits a customer without having to default to someone smarter than us to just tell people to take it. It feels tacky. It's been amazing for us, and I don't want to discredit the fact that we got it, but I know that we got lucky with that.
2: I hear you say... Wow, we've had such incredible fortune over the last couple of years. We've had some individuals who have huge networks, support this product, bring it out there, get us an incredibly loyal fan base, subscriber base. But we have no clue how to replicate that in the US.
0: I would say that's bang on, yes.
2: Mm.
0: The super lazy part of me would say... I could just go to CAA America is a place full of celebrities and stars and you just reach out to them and pay someone a fucking ton to like represent you and just job done but um my issues with all of this are ick I can't I can't help but be fundamentally British about such things um and the difference is you know that would be forcing You know, these were happy circumstances that happened that were amazing and they're authentic. They're actual paying customers every month. We've never paid them a penny. They pay us every month and it's super different. So even the start of that relationship is so inauthentic and unorganic that I know that that isn't even necessarily the right way to do it. So um, even though that could be a solve, right? Just default the marketing problem to someone else that has authority that other people trust and just replicate that model. I feel like that would be inauthentic and fundamentally run its course and we still run into exactly the same problem anyway which is we never learned how to do the hard work
1: so what i'm hearing dan is that wow now that i say it now that i hear georgia say it back to me i realize whoa actually that would work in the us it would work if we had a celebrity use the product have it transform their lives and start being an advocate for us but the only way that i can think of right now to get such a celebrity is to hire caa and offer lots of money to a celebrity who's already wealthy. So I'm going to have to offer them huge amounts of money to try this product. And that just feels icky. And it also feels like it won't really be effective because it's not authentic. It's not, it hasn't really transformed their lives. They're doing it for money, not because they really believe in it. And so as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that what made what made it work for us in the UK is these were friends of ours. These were people who we knew, or we knew people who knew them and therefore it got introduced to them as a recommendation from a friend. And then they started to use it, and then they loved it, and then it transformed their lives, and then they became genuine advocates of the product. That's what really works. And I tell myself that I don't know anybody in the US, I don't have any friends who have any friends who are well-known people in the US because I haven't researched it, I haven't looked at it, I haven't said this is the pathway to get there. I tell myself the only way I can get there is by paying, and instinctively I know that that's not a successful way. Is that close?
0: Um, Yeah, embarrassingly, I think you nailed that one, yeah. I haven't actually done the work of mapping out whether I do or could. That's fair. But I think the part that you obviously missed is I still believe, whether it's a self-limiting belief or it's an honest truth, that... That's not really a way to build a good brand. That's the stuff that gives you these enormous, exciting bumps on top of knowing what the fuck you're doing and who you're doing it for. It shouldn't be masking over figuring these things out. And the problem in consumer, certainly, but I think in all startups, right, because you're basically trying to create a business and understand how to repeat and scale it, is, you know, it's time if you give anything enough time and enough energy and enough thought, you'll eventually find your path. But in startup land, obviously, you have burn, you have runway, you have cash out date, and the race is on to try and figure out these things in time and give yourself enough of of a budget to actually scale that up once you've found it. So, you know, part of me is thinking, if I had infinite amounts of time, I believe that I would be able to solve this. And the other part of me thinks that, I don't, but I still want to do the thing that I believe is the hard work.
1: So I think what I'm hearing you say is, Matt, that's all icing on the cake. I want to solve the fundamental problem of understanding what problem is that consumers have that we are solving that resonates with them, that we are the best solution in the world for that particular problem. That's the only key. Find out what people's problems are then map out what the best solution for each set of problems is, and then discover which segment of the population has the problem for which my solution is the best solution. And then simply find those people. Let's say it's women between 35 and 45. They have a problem of gut biome, this, that, and my my solution is the best for them. It has the best outcomes. Now I just have to find women between the age of thirty-five and forty-five. Where are they? Where are their eyeballs? What are they looking at? What are they doing? And I got to have to get my information in those places so that they hear and see about us. And the and the message I'm going to deliver to them is: Do you have this problem? If yes, we have your answer. That's it.
0: Um. So, th- yeah, of course, like understanding the problems you're solving for. A specific niche is, is the work. Um, I do agree. Um, the biggest challenge actually we have is if you look at our customer reviews or existing customer reviews of thousands, sadly, I mean, it's amazing and I'm very grateful for it and I don't want to give off the wrong impression, but sadly there's 20-year-olds at university and there's like 85-year-olds living longer. And so it's very hard to just discern the exact like who you're for and who you're not, which is the most annoying part of my business in a sense, because I think that is the best chance you have to win.
1: What problem is it that they have? And there's several, there'll be several problems. What are the top three problems that they have that your product is solving or the top one?
0: Yeah. Generally speaking, um, it's, it's mental being. So the number one benefit is sleep and therefore energy.
1: Perfect. My problem is I am not sleeping as much as I want to. I have a version of insomnia and it's causing me stress and anxiety in my life. Is that the problem?
0: It's not even as extreme as that. This is also the issue. It's, it's you know, But in the most common thing that we hear, and also from people wearing wearables and measurables and all this stuff, is, yeah, I ha- I'm not sleeping great. It's not insomnia, but it's just that, well, I haven't ever slept this well, and therefore I haven't had as much energy. And part of the reasons for this is because if you get the right nutrients in your body and brain, you do thrive. And you can get that in your diet, but most of us just don't bother because we're lazy and we don't eat the perfect diet all the time. And so that's just a downstream effect. So no, so anyway, those are the main benefits. And it's it's also worth saying it helps for depression, anxiety, ADHD, you know, a whole bunch of other things. And there's many science papers on this stuff. However, our name is Hypes and we choose not to sell on fear. So our whole thing is, you know, trust your gut, change your mind, reach your Hypes. It's all about uplifting, trying to talk to the promised land. And that is arguably also possibly a problem in America with our, our marketing, right? Because there's a lot of fear-based selling in America and we want to be better than that. And so even part in this coaching call, I'm having the sort of epiphany, but I suppose it's obvious, but there's a part of where our brand values sit and the kind of brand we want to be. And I guess what consumers are used to, which is triggering a fear or a pain and trying to connect on that, which we're quite reluctant to do.
1: It feels to me you're making an assumption that it's fear. It's, it's preying on people's fear. We're talking about people who are suffering. People have depression and have insomnia. They are suffering. And people will pay a lot of money to solve painful problems. Whereas what you're saying is we're going after people who wish they slept better and wish they had more energy. That's a nice to have. Sure, I'll test things out and I'll try things. But it's not a deep and massive, oh my God pain that I'm experiencing every day. So I th- there's a judgment that you have that pray- that that addressing people who are experiencing deep pain would be uh, preying upon them, would be predatory. Uh, 100%. And I don't agree with you.
0: Yeah, fair. Fair. And that, that might well be a self-limiting belief.
1: Great. All right. At this point, what I would do is I've written up many solutions, and I would simply share one of our write-ups about how to achieve product market fit and how to message to get your message out there to the, to the world in a way that would resonate. Would you be willing to read this document because it's a lot faster than George and I explaining it to you and see if it resonates?
0: Matt sent me a document called product, what product to build, how to position it, which we put a link in the show notes along with a link to other Mashari method documents as they are all open source and my God, are they good documents for you to check out. Now the document goes through what product development and customer problem discovery should look like. Two things really resonated with me. The first was this piece of advice. Matt writes, if you are a customer, be careful. You are just one customer. It would be best if you talk to a range of customers to discover common pain points. If you build for just one customer, even if it's you, you are likely building a customized solution, not a product. The second was a story from Matt's own experience as a coach. One of his clients runs a unicorn which sells a product to hospitals. They're growing quickly, but the CEO could see that hospitals weren't the ideal customer. They make slow decisions and don't have much cash. The customers he'd like to have were pharmaceutical and medical device companies. So, Matt told him to go out and talk to them. The client did that, and after three months of conversations, he identified a key problem he could solve. Six months ago, that client, who thought he'd never get past 2 to $3 billion in value, is now confident he'll be getting to $100 billion. And the lesson of the story is, never stop doing the customer problem discovery process, both with your current customers and the customers you wish you had. This really resonated with me, as I told Matt. Two reflections I have. One, I do think that actually over the last year, we've gone off the boil of speaking to customers. I used to do it all the time, um, and everyone in the company had to do it every single week. What we've done over the last year, interestingly, was meant to drive more customer insight, which is we hired a really good and then upskilled a customer care team and basically built the business around the customer care team. So they were sort of the central focus of the business, reporting, communicating, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, because we're a retention business. So that makes actually a lot of sense, because that's actually where all of our revenue predominantly comes from. And actually, now I'm thinking about it, what has downstream accidentally happened from that is it stopped everyone else going out and speaking to customers all the time, too, because we now have a handful of voices that are representing the customer all the time telling us what customers are saying, which is taking individuals further away from customers, including the founders. So that's one insight that I think is really valuable, which I want to go back to now that I'm um, having my first breakthrough of the Mashari method, thank you, uh, which is uh, the, such an obvious one. It's so basic, I feel almost embarrassed. Just talk to your fucking customers. But my other point would be, well, actually, isn't it really useful to talk to your not-customers? Like the, the big challenge, and I have this with product development quite often, with product developers in general, product managers, is they're so obsessed with what, customers want and they give so many opinions of what all the customers want I always say to them yeah but we've got like not percent of all the customers in the fucking world so like we need to know what the people that aren't buying from us think and why they're not like that's actually more insightful for our business and that's really the challenge because actually in our business if you think about it we know what makes customers happy because we manage to keep them we just don't know why we're not getting other customers so how do you frame what you just sent to me with that kind of insight
1: Yeah. So there's two different things. One is you're talking to new potential customers to talk about new potential products. That was the example of the CEO that wanted to sell to pharmaceuticals and device companies. So he simply went and talked to the CEOs of those companies and said, what what are your problems? And then he realized, oh my gosh, I actually have a solution to your problems better than anyone else can. In the consumer world, it's a little bit different, but you're talking to your existing customers not to develop a new product. It's to understand which customers are
0: truly
1: in love? Which customers have you really solved the problem for? And so what is that problem that you've really solved? Because you want to then go find every single person in the world that has that same problem. And what the superhuman team realized was, you can talk to customers that desperately love your product, kind of like it, or, eh, they buy it, but they don't really use it. You want to understand the problem you're solving for the people who desperately love your product. The ones who are like, eh, it's okay. Like, don't worry about what problems they have that you're solving because you're not solving it very well. But this problem here, you're solving it really well. So focus on the customers that absolutely adore you and find out what it is, what pain you're solving for them. Now, separately, you do want to get other customers, but this is a bit for your current product, that's where the gold already is. You already have tens of thousands of customers. That's already a plenty wide swath of the human profile. You don't need more new customers that don't look at anything like the 10,000 or the, I don't even know how many, but you said you only had a thousand in the US. So I assume you have many more in the UK and Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, just, just under 20,000 total.
1: Great. More than 50 is already representative of almost every aspect of human existence. And so you have 20,000, you have way, way, you have, you know, 400 times more than what it is that you need. And did I get that math right? No, I didn't. Um, but yeah, maybe I did.
0: No, Nobody's perfect, Matt.
1: <laughs> exactly. But if you want to develop a new product, then yes. That's when you go and talk to the customers that you wish you had. And of course, when you think about customers at an enterprise level, you want to talk about the companies that have the biggest wallets and therefore are willing to pay the most money. And in consumers, you want to think about that as well. But your product likely already solves a key problem for people who have plenty of money. I think it is key that you do talk to your existing customers. What you haven't understood yet is which ones absolutely desperately love it and which ones just keep paying but don't desperately love it. That's, I think, your next step and your next work. It's what Rahul did at Superhuman. It's following his path.
0: Mm. Georgia, what did you hear?
2: One thing that really stands out that there's an incredible podcast that actually is part of the uh, Mashari method curriculum, which is really around um, how to figure out product positioning. Because I think a lot of what I'm hearing is like, we have certain people who love what we do, but like, how do we make sure that like what they love is what other people can also see? And so actually speaking to those customers, about like, what do you love about this? Like, what is it really? Because they might hear something totally different than what you actually putting out in the messaging and maybe just listening to what they're loving about your product and putting that out will attract more of that kind.
0: Yeah, no, I I think a big part of this is a product positioning issue for sure. And of course, time, right? Like product positioning problems, you know, will solve themselves out if you have enough time, but startups don't have enough time.
1: I keep hearing you coming back to this, Dan, which is I want more runway. I want more time. Whether Whatever the solution is here, I want enough time to figure it out. Right now, my burn is way too high. Is that right, Dan?
0: Yes. You know, it depends who you ask. A lot of people would say that it's not crazy high, but because we are a revenue generating consumer brand, I feel like we can get much closer to being an actual business, a.k.a. Maybe even dare I say the word profitability? I do think that that is possible, um, if we figure out what we're doing properly. I do.
1: Mm-hmm. How many how many people in the company right now?
0: Uh, twenty two.
1: And what's the mix of those people?
0: The mix is, I would say, a you know, thirty percent marketing, brand, creative, twenty percent product. 25% science and the rest is sort of customer service and um, and you know, and support.
1: Mm-hmm. So are you ready to have the very difficult conversation?
0: Well, it depends. But yes, always, always. Sorry, it depends is a terrible answer. Of course I am that. <laughs>
1: so here's, here's the experience that we've seen. Now, this is obviously tech related and with dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people. But in March of... 2020, uh, the pandemic hit and everyone thought we have no idea what's going to happen in the economy. There's a really good chance the economy completely and utterly shuts down and we'll have massive unemployment and massive, you know, depression, not recession. And companies need to prepare for this. And the easiest way is to cut costs. Now, if it turns out later, the recession doesn't happen, fine, you can rehire, but you need, the sooner you cut the costs, the more prepared, the more runway you'll have. So. Every one of our portfolio companies cut costs, did a reduction in force, let go between 5% and 40% of the team. Everyone feared this is going to be a huge hit to the business. We won't perform as well, but it's a necessary step that we have to do to to prepare. Then a shocking thing happened. 60 days later, every single CEO that we coach reported back that Morale was now higher and absolute performance was now greater. The engineering teams were putting out more features, higher quality at a faster pace. The customer satisfaction with the tools was growing. Every metric was either at par or higher than it was before the reduction force. It was a shocking occurrence. And suddenly our CEOs realized the fewer people there are in the team, the less coordination is required, the faster people can move, the better the output. And we thought, oh, okay, that's because you left the top performers and you let go of the bottom performers. Okay, that makes sense. But then we also had some examples that were pretty shocking that had nothing to do with top or bottom performer. We had one CEO who in 2020 or 2021 Accidentally, completely not voluntarily, 80% of one department quit because the person they were reporting to, there was a ton of friction and there were 40 people in the department. It was a creative department. The top 32 left. The CEO called me and said, it was desperate. This department was already behind, was already not keeping up with the rest of the company. And now the top 80% just quit. I'm screwed. Well, there was nothing we could do. So we just kept going forward. 30 days later, he called me and said, Matt, I can't explain this. But that department now with the eight remaining very junior people is now has double the output that it had previously and is completely keeping up with where they need to be. In fact, we're not even gonna hire anymore. We're like, the, the problem solved. So it turned out that it wasn't keeping the highest quality people. It was simply reducing the number of people. The less coordination required, the easier it was to get things done. So now we come to June, May of 2022, financial crisis, tech stocks down by 50 to 90% fundraising, basically impossible unless you're gonna do a down round. When a down round occurs, because of the technicalities of equity ownership, it basically wipes out early investors and and employees who are uh, no longer at the company. It's basically a horrific event for the existing shareholders. Nobody wants to do it. And so the only other alternative is to reduce costs massively. So you extend your runway. But this time CEOs knew that this was a positive thing. This would actually increase the output of the company. So this time, instead of a very modest five or 10% up until 40, we had companies doing 20 to 30% up until 50. Up until 60, there was one company that let go of 80% of the company. The results, fantastic. Now, there's a way to let people go. There's a way to do it humanely. There's a way to do it so that because a massively traumatic event for someone to lose their job. And you can therefore just say, hey, sorry, see ya, good luck. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to put in real effort to help you find what is real, what you'll be great at, what you will love, what you will love to do, and therefore will be great at, and will satisfy your financial needs. Let's, let me be your CAA agent and help you find that job, but actively, not just like, yeah, I'll give a reference for you. No, 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 crap. I'm going to be the person doing the work because right now you're in a traumatized state. You don't, you can't even get out of bed in the morning. So I'm going to do the work on your behalf. If you do that, then you can get people to a much better place and a much better role than they have in your company today. And you pay them enough severance so that you, they continue with the cash they need until they start getting the cash from the new company. It's probably about three months, if not longer. If you do that, you can both solve your runway problem and at the same time, not inflict massive damage on the people who have been so loyal and helpful to you these years. Now, that's a hard conversation to have and what I what we do is we simply put CEOs who have never gone through this process and feel tons of fear with the CEOs who've already gone through this process and we connect them and then the fears disappear. I can tell you that all these things that your fears are, are misplaced, but it's much more effective if you talk to a CEO who's actually done it recently within the past 12 months who can explain that this thing like, I fear that... New recruits will no longer want to come to the company because they'll think we're a failing company. CEO says, I thought that too. And then what happened? All these phenomenal people reached out and said they wanted to work for us because they saw how disciplined we were. My fear is that our output will go down and customers will lose faith. I had that fear too. It turns out output went up and customers started liking the product even more. I, so just all the list of fears and the other CEO can say, I had those exact same fears. And it didn't pan out that way at all. That's a tough conversation to have on a podcast, Dan.
0: You know, I guess I've done two versions. I've obviously done the normal firing that any CEO does. I've also done two versions, one where I had to fire half the team. And I suppose, you know, I had, it was tough and I did exactly what you said, which is, um, you know, reach out to other people that have done it and get some experience on how it can be done humanely and all of the things and i've i've failed a company so i've also had to fire everyone um and that was obviously a lot easier because i was fired too and it was a shared thing and if everyone's going down everyone's going down it's just writings on the wall um and i did all the things you said um and it obviously i know because i've had that experience which is helpful I know what a big impact it makes to really go to town to find people their new jobs and and really spend the time doing it. I suppose the thing that I haven't got experience in that I am really nervous about, if I'm really honest, and I can't get my head around if I have to do something like this, Matt, is in a remote world, I can't get my head around how to do this practically speaking, and feel like it's humane and all of the things. Um, I don't know, there's something about being in the room when I was doing it that felt like I was connecting on a genuine, authentic level and doing it behind a screen is gonna feel terrible. Um, And so I don't know, I don't know what my resolution is, but I also, I guess my question to you is, um, what would you do? How would you do this remotely?
1: Yeah, you do it as personally as you possibly can. So one-on-one, You never, you know, with a group of 22, it's not an issue. With a group of 2,000, it's an issue. You never say, here's a mass message to all 500 of you. I'm letting all of you go now. Never do that. The first time someone learns that their job is over, they're hearing it one-on-one from their manager. That's the first thing. And second, the manager then says, and here's what I'm going to do to take care of you. I'm going to find you a job. I'm going to give you the long severance. I'm going to pay for a therapist for the next six months for you. I'm going to whatever the things that you're going to implement to help them, to help them through this traumatic event. That's when they hear both of those things. And also they get listened to and they will have fear and anger. And whoever's delivering the message to them listens to that fear and anger and reflects it back to them so they feel heard. That's the way to do it humanely. Obviously it's better if you can be there in person you want to get on a plane and fly around to all these places? I don't think that's practical, but you do it as one-on-one as you, as in person as, as recreate the environment that you would have one-on-one. And unfortunately you're right. It is not as good, but you just got to get over that.
0: Yeah. That's really helpful.
1: So now Dan, what are you going to do? Cause the key part of all this is we spent a lot of time thinking about and breaking down problems. And now you have focus and clarity of thought on both these issues, on how to position your product in the United States and how to extend your runway. You're not gonna spend this kind of time and effort again on these two issues. So now's the time to capture what resonates with you and what would you like to do. And this I find is one of the key aspects to managing or coaching. And coaching is really just managing. Whenever I coach someone, I say, you know. 22 people report to you, but you don't report to anybody. Or 10,000 people report to you, but you don't report to anybody. Now you report to me. And if after three meetings you feel more confident, more successful, more complete, then you know that this structure works. And then you can use it with your reports and their reports and their reports. And one of the key things in the structure is at the end of each issue or topic, we say, okay, what are you now going to do? And we capture that action. And in the next meeting, the first thing we do is say, Did you do those actions? And the answer is, if you didn't, why not? And we'll figure out what blocked you. Okay, let's solve that blockage until you do the actions. And once you start to see the pattern up, I unpack an issue, I come up with actions, and I actually do the actions, suddenly problems start to disappear. But it's remarkable how we forget to think of the actions, and then we forget to do the actions. As a manager, that's all I'm doing, saying remind you to think of the action, document it, and then actually hold you accountable to doing it. And if I can do those two things, you will achieve great things. So now we're gonna do the first part. We're gonna document what actions you're gonna take. I'm writing.
0: So I guess first and foremost, or to put it in your language, what I'm hearing is I will Certainly give a focus to customer insight. So uncover the top 5% or in other language, I think, you know, that you would use is, you know, the NPS of Uh eight or nine uh, or nine on 10 and figure out exactly who are my customers that couldn't live without my product and what their pains are. And also potentially get myself comfortable with this idea that solving a pain isn't necessarily um, an evil thing. Um, so renounce my passport, <laughs> um, and, um, and 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 yeah, and and do the do the hard work on customer discovery out in the USA, whilst also trying to think about you know I haven't done. You know, to an earlier point, I haven't done the consideration piece that you said. Do I know anyone who knows anyone? Is that a possibility just to seed the product to people that other people respect? So I haven't done that work either, and I could definitely prioritize that. But these things take time. Mm -hmm. So I have to give myself time. And, you know, the thing I'm acutely aware of, at least in this business, there's, you know, because we have a product, because it's a very high quality product. The, there are two cost bases, and one is the ingredients and the product, and the other is people. And obviously, with a product-based business, you don't have the opportunity to leverage that lever whatsoever, so I'm kind of stuck with a very simple logic. And then it comes down to, if I have to reduce... I guess here's the, the question, so if I can see the writings on the wall and I know what I need to do. Matt and Georgia how do I actually figure out how deep to go?
1: Okay, so what we've, what we've seen is, is that there actually is a way to create trauma in the company, and that is to cut once, then to cut a second time, then to cut a third time. Once you reach the third time, people now will not believe anything you say. And if you say, hey, this is the last time we're cutting, you're, the people who are here, you guys are safe, this is where you're gonna be forever, They just won't believe it. And they shouldn't because it's clearly not true. And then they will say, I don't feel safe here. I need to leave. And they will voluntarily leave, the people that you want to stay. So unfortunately, the only way to not have to cut a second and a third time is to cut deeper than you want to the first time. And so far of the 40 CEOs that we've had that have made cuts, not a single one has said, "Mm, I cut too much. Not one. Now, many have said, "Mm, I didn't go deep enough. So you don't want to say that. You want to go deeper than you think. Go more painful than you think. We actually did have one CEO who came back to me and said, Matt, my CTO misunderstood what we were saying and accidentally let go of 50% of the engineering team. I didn't want him to do that. I wanted to let go of 20% of the engineering team. So, and he said to me, now we're screwed. We've cut too much. We've cut too much in engineering. But that was like day one after letting go. Two months later, he came back to me and said, Matt, I changed my tune. That actually forced us to rethink our product and rethink what we were building. And it turns out we were building everything because three years ago, these various point solutions in the industry didn't exist. So we had to build everything. But now three years later, these point solutions exist and they're better than what we have. And now that we can't, don't have enough engineers to build everything, we realize what do we, what's the core? And the core is a dashboard that ties them all together. So we're now just gonna connect to all these other third-party tools that are better than what we have. And our product therefore overall is gonna be better and it's gonna be future-proof. We never would have discovered this if we hadn't let go of all these engineers. So even then there was a good outcome. So my advice to you is twofold. One, let go of more than you think you need to. And two, you simply pick the people that you think you can survive without. That's it. The ones who are just not absolutely mission critical. That's it. Now, if you have managers who are able to, this is the hardest job as a manager, letting people go. And so causing managers to let people go, I've found is a very difficult task. Um, that's why it often requires the founder to make the decision. And you don't have to choose the exact people. Let's say you have a manager who's managing 10 people, you let them choose, but you choose the extent. Because you say, let me know who you don't need. They'll always say, they'll say, no, everybody, I need everybody. They'll never voluntarily let people go. So you have to give them the dollar amount reduction that's required
0: yeah that's helpful and horrible yes and and the work fundamentally right and the work and the work okay thank you i guess probably time to reflect I suppose going into, I mean, firstly, going into the call, I was, uh, I'm curious, love the book, really interested, read about the Machari methods. obviously, it's quite awesome to have a coaching experience with you guys directly, you know, going in, there's this sort of excitement and curiosity, I think, like any coaching call, right, and actually, the nature of all coaching calls, and I know this as well, because I do coaching, as a coachee and a coach, Uh, sometimes sessions are shit, nothing you can do. It's just there's nothing to uncover that time. And sometimes you have breakthroughs and then there's obviously the pattern of everything in between. So there's always the, I don't really know what is going to happen necessarily in the session, but what I really thought was a powerful way to start was what's keeping me up at night because it very quickly got to my problems immediately. And then, of course, the other side of it is dealing head on with things that I think without proper accountability and enough choice. And also the other problem that we have, which I think could hopefully be relevant to listeners, you know um, we could get away with not doing this. And I think that we would be a worse business um, because it's avoidant of the problem. We're in an unusual position where the fires aren't burning so badly that I have to make a wartime CEO decision It's more that I failed before and I have some awareness of the pattern and therefore I'd like to deal with it earlier, but without the right accountability or conversation like this, I could easily go on avoiding it, which I think I probably would have done, if I'm honest, prequel. So it's been really helpful to help me face up to hard truths and narrow my choices down. You know, they're all pretty obvious when you go through the process, right? But the point obviously with coaching is you don't go through this process in your head enough you can easily talk yourself out of hard conversations and hard decisions.
2: I love that summary, Dan. And I'll just, I'll just add one little nugget, one thing that I learned from Matt, which I really love, and I'll share that document with you as well, is this incredible notion of there's a decision, and then there's implementing the decision. And often we get scared of the emotional load of implementing it, that we don't even want to take the decision. And that to me, even for me personally, since I've known that and since Matt explained that to me has been such an aha effect because I now know, ooh, there's a decision. I don't like it. I go, ooh, it's usually because there's something that I don't want to do versus take the decision. And that's really made my life so much easier.
1: Yeah. And Dan, I'm going I'm, to, again, I'm going to push you as well here, which is um, we didn't, you didn't say what you're going to do about the costs. So what are you going to do? Dan, you can edit this out if you want to.
0: So one thing I do with Heights is I build in public, and so which has been a very hard, difficult thing to do in general, but I do it. So whatever I say here is going in on the basis of keeping transparency uh, to my own core belief of how I wanted to build the business. So what am I going to do? Well, um, I suppose cut once, cut deep. So prior to the call, my thinking is I need to probably let go of a couple of people and rethink some of what I'm going to do. Now, I suppose my initial thought and belief is maybe I need to cut literally half the entire team and build from there. I mean, if I cut half the team, I, I can't do the maths just like Matt, but um, the I mean, my runway would be years, not months. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily become an issue. And then it's just about doing the hard work of finding the product market fit messaging and, and all of the other things. But I suppose that's the truth. Um, the truth is... Prior to this call, I think I had in my head two people that we just had to to cut sunburn um, and make life a bit easier, but now I realise that I actually understand and agree with your point about trauma, and I wouldn't want to do that, and I would also feel pretty stupid if I'm honest, doing that, having failed before, I know what it's like, so... the answer to your question is I'm going to do the hard work of figuring out who the half are. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be fair either. And I think that's actually part of it. This is very much the truth of the matter is there are a lot of individual performers that won't deserve it.
1: No one deserves it.
0: No, that's true. No one deserves it. But I mean, there are people who, if it's if it has to be half... I mean, I'll put it this way. There's like maybe a couple of people in my mind that I'm like, that seems really obvious I'd have to do. It. I don't want to, but I'd have to. But if it's half, there's a lot of people that just absolutely don't deserve to be let go of in our company whatsoever, not for the amount they were, not for their contribution, not for anything. And if I still need to do it, I need to do it. And then I just need to deal with um, how I think this can be communicated humanely and fairly. And like you say, I am lucky that we're of a certain size that could do this all one-to-one.
1: That's right. Thank you for, for sharing that, Dan.
0: But it sucks. It sucks. Mm. It
1: absolutely sucks.
0: Uh, yeah. And I'll report back.
1: Okay. Thank you. I've written these actions down. I'm going to email them to you so they're documented and we'll follow up in 60 days and make sure you've done them.
0: Maybe actually that would be quite an interesting thing. Can we do a a, a part two of the interview on uh, in 60 days? See where we got to. Sure. Great. That's the action for you. Got you down to account.
1: (laughs) Fantastic.
0: Um, Okay. My last question for you, then you're off the hook. What is your top tip for founders and business leaders over the next year? What is your advice for them?
1: Get an accountability partner. Yeah, get an accountability partner. Get someone who will ask you that question and then reflect back to you what they heard. Force you to write down the actions you're going to take and then check in with you and see whether or not you did those actions and force you to figure out why you didn't until you finally do them. That's it. And Georgia can do that fantastically, but or get a coach. That's what a coach does. Yeah. Or at least that's what Mushari Method coaches do. I don't know what other coaches do. That's what Mushari Method coaches do.
2: I think my advice is really to... Every time we fear hesitation, every time we feel there's something lurking in the background, it's usually some decision knocking. Um, We often feel discomfort, we feel fear, we feel a bit anxious. And our tendency is to try and get busy, like just do something, get another coffee, build another product, whatever it is. But we often have a tendency, fight or flight, to get away from what we're experiencing and the tendency is actually to get curious, is to just pause for a moment, put the phone down and go, what am I feeling and why am I feeling it? And there's something nagging and just get curious about why, what, what's going on. Oh, there's this something in engineering is not working. I don't know what it is, but something is not working. We haven't met this, this and this milestone. And by just getting curious, like, okay, who do I need to talk to, to figure out what is going on or what is not going on? Can you just by slowing down, actually face the fear or face the nagging feeling and actually penetrate it. And so a big part of that is to find time in your calendar, ideally in the morning, ideally on a Monday morning, to just have an hour of sort of bored reflection time, go for a walk, leave your phone at home. Try and find sort of time where you really can think and just go, what's going on in the company? What are the things that my intuition or my Sixth Sense, whatever you might want to call it, is telling me something is not quite right. Like you knew that there's something up with your company. You knew it for a while. That's why you brought this into the company, into the coaching session today. And so if we just get curious around these sort of intuition, these hunches, and just go, what is going on here? And face them, we can actually make progress much faster and deal with these problems head on.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, your value specifically, and your insights on secret leaders today. Great to see you,
2: Dan. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been great.
0: Matt Mashari and Georgia Dienst. Thank you so much to them for coming on. And like I said in the introduction, I did take hard decisive action following this conversation and let go of 40% of my team. A lot of great people who didn't deserve it, but that's the hardest part of being an entrepreneur. It's not about doing what you want to do, it's doing what you have to do once you face up to the truth. As Georgia says at the end there in her advice to all entrepreneurs to slow down, face the feeling and penetrate that feeling of discomfort, we're all always going to face difficult decisions but the longer we leave them the worse they get. If you've listened this far, thank you. I was genuinely pretty nervous about putting out something so raw and true that had such a profound effect on other people, and of course, you know how it makes me appear as a leader. And I'm signing off with fear, but also with a sense of pride for living up to my own word for this year, which was confidence. Having the confidence to put this out regardless of what could be a huge fallout from my audience, or worse, you know, actually causing pain to my ex-colleagues who I admire, doing it anyway in pursuit of pushing myself past my comfort zone and seeking to share the real truth. This is what startups are really like and the more we share the realities the better I think we all will be and I hope this helps you if you're in a similar situation or maybe gives you the tools to handle it if you face something like I did in the future. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Surter. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman. See you next week.